0: Hello and welcome to The Voices Project. I'm Liz Barker and I'm joined by Becky Webb. And together on this podcast, we talk to people about their experiences of the arts during the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis of 2020. This week, we have an interview with Lizzie Nunnery. Lizzie is a playwright, musician, and screenwriter. And we spoke about how the pandemic had been affecting her and her partner and the importance of community and youth arts. Like everything in this pandemic, the podcast is recorded over remote video conferencing software. The Voices Project is an open platform for anyone who is involved in any way with the arts to share their thoughts, feelings and experiences of art in the current crisis. If you would like to participate and share your voice, you can find out how to do that by visiting our website, www.marchforthearts.com hello lizzie nunnery thank you so much for joining me and becky today on the on the march for the arts voices podcast thanks for uh thanks for joining us
1: hello thanks for asking me yeah
0: yeah really really excited to be chatting today so What I would just like to start us off with, if you don't mind, for anyone who's listening who perhaps isn't familiar with yourself and your work, would you mind just sort of giving us a bit of an introduction to you and what you do in the arts?
1: I'm a script writer and a songwriter, a singer. Um, I've mostly made a living as a script writer, um, lots of theatre and radio. And then in the last couple of years, I've been getting into screen as well working on a feature film and working on a few other projects um and then for years I've been out performing as a musician I work in a, a duo with my partner Vidal Norheim we write songs together and do gigs together um so yeah lots of different kind of angles on on the arts in a way yeah amazing and I'm, I'm wondering did
0: you start as a musician and then become a script writer did you start as a script writer or is it more of a sort of a, a symbiotic thing?
1: Um, I did start music first, actually. Um, I was doing acoustic nights and songwriter nights when I was like 16, 17. That was the first kind of performance that I, I did. And yeah, I was always very instinctive about songwriting. And then I tried playwriting while I was a student. It was a competition and I had to go and then kind of fell in love with writing dialogue. And then the big thing for me was that when I left uni, I got a place on the Young Writers Programme at the Everyman with Suzanne Bell, who was there at the time as the literary manager. And that was what really kind of channelled me into trying to make a career as a theatre writer. That was a, an amazing opportunity.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fantastic the uh, what they do at the Everyman with all the sort of, the, well, the Young Everyman and Playhouse stuff that they do. I, myself, I, I did the Young Technicians course when I came out of university. And I think, Becky, you were involved with, with the Young Yeah, I did the Young Writers
2: well. course. Yeah, Young Writers course with Lizzie.
1: Yeah,
2: that was yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Suzanne Bell. She was, she, yeah, well, it's amazing. Um, and John Larkin as well. He was part of our group as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, really, really great stuff that they
0: yeah, and I think, um, so do you think that getting that start quite young and getting that support quite young sort of instilled in you a sort of, that realised that you, you could do the arts as a, as a full-time thing, that this is what your plan was going to be, or is it always, for me personally, I've, I'm still kind of making it up as I go along, I've always gone, you know, what? I want to be in the arts, I want to keep being around theatre, has there sort of been like a, did you ever make a plan of like, this is what I want to go this is the journey I want to go on or is it is it naturally sort of forming
1: I always wanted to be a writer and then my experience with script writing at uni made me quite certain I wanted to write theatre and I think it, it was the connection with the everyman in general that made it all seem possible and practical you know that I'd have to put in an awful lot of work and probably still have quite a bit of luck but that it was possible and more than just seeing what was possible for writers I remember the first time I went into the annex building and when it was part of the everyman and all the officers were in there and just being really blown away by all these people who were working in all these jobs in these little rooms behind perspect windows because like a lot of people I had that idea of you know, as a teenager, that theatre was writers and directors and actors, and that was probably about it. Maybe someone worked in the box office. But like looking around and going, Oh no, there's a literary department and a finance department and a development department where they're raising funds in. And I was so excited by that. And then um, I actually did work for about three years as literary assistant as well, um, as Suzanne Bell's assistant, um, which was such an education learning how how theatre operates, how scripts operate, how, you know, you might get work on a stage. I saw all that from the inside, really. So I had kind of two angles on it, which was, yeah, a real luxury, actually, when I look back.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely... I think I remember that... I think I remember... The, the thing for me that made me want to start thinking about theatre, I think I saw a production... I can't even remember what the production was, and I sort of saw this stage show, and it was a fantastic, large stage show. And I remember like there was sort of like big pieces of truck setting coming on, so like big massive sets that would just sort of swing into the middle of the stage and there was a trap that was moving and people were flying and I remember thinking to myself there are so many more people working on this than I can see, there are sort of like yes all the actors are here and there were some musicians and I could see the musicians and it was a massive, I think it was one of the national productions potentially and I think I saw it and, and it was definitely in a very big theatre And um, I just remember sitting there and thinking, there must be so many people here that I can't see, and I wanna know what they do, and I wanna know about them. And I think that sort of curiosity for me really kicked me into this. And then obviously finding out about all these sort of different things really gave me a real passion for this idea of interconnectivity and this idea that actually, me as an individual in my arts organization or my theater or wherever I'm working, I'm dependent on a full team. And that for me, that community element is what's really, really important to me about the arts and what's important to me about getting people to understand. But I'm just wondering, do you have something particular about working in theatre or working with writing or working with music that is like the thing where you go, that's why I do this. What is the, this is why I do this for you?
1: The thing that keeps me doing it is about clearing some space to to make sense of things. And, you know, working on a script, getting it on a stage is that I think we're constantly living in a state of confusion. Even as humans, we're always just trying to work each other out and work ourselves out, work out how to be the best people we can be in the world and survive. Um, and there's, a, there's something that's such a privilege about getting to be an artist of some sort where you can actually make it your job to unravel things and make connections and get back and ask, you know, is society working in the way it should? Do do we know how to love each other in the way we should? All those big questions. And the brilliant thing with theatre is it's live. So that whereas, you know, you can explore stories like I have done on radio or started to, to do on screen, and that can be immediate and intimate in different ways. There's nothing really that replaces that for being part of a community that has an emotional experience, you know, everybody breathing in at once or laughing at the same time or reacting to that same idea. I think that humanizes us in a very particular way. It reminds us of where we are in society and the fact that we do all need to interconnect and we, all our lives are tangled up inextricably. We have to understand each other. Um, So... That's quite a rambly way to answer your question. But in all honesty, I feel like if I didn't do creative things, I'd go a bit mad. I need to do them to to kind of stay calm and <laughs> carry on. Yeah.
2: yeah. Do you think as well, sorry, do you think as well something with, with the music and you were saying you perform live uh, with gigs, is that part of it as well, that kind of live element of with song, just that direct connection with sort of audience and that feedback that you get um from the audience and that as a singer is that something as well do you think that draws you to keep doing your music side of stuff?
1: Yeah I do. Um I think that there's something great about the way a song lives on. Um once it's been heard, people carry a song around. Um and you know songs I wrote years ago people might come up to me and say oh I, I still play that in my car or I still think about those lyrics and it kind of travels beyond you, which is really wonderful. Um, and then maybe in a slightly more egotistical way, I, I love performance as a musician for the, weirdly the stillness of it. Um, I'm not necessarily a very extrovert person, but actually it's, I find it much harder to be in a busy room where everybody's talking and competing for attention. Um, you know in complex social interactions than to stand up on a stage where there's a structure and the lights go down and, and now it's my turn to sing. And there's a there's a kind of simplicity to that. And you know, these songs that have been honed that me and Vidar have worked on together, um these lyrics that I've kind of slowly pieced together because I had something very particular to say, I get the chance to to just take that moment and speak to those people in front of me in a very clear way um and that's quite addictive actually it's hard to give that up and hopefully it has a has a value
0: i think has a massive value and um i was going to say as well but please don't don't for one minute think that you're rambling when i take about five minutes to ask a very complicated (laughs) roundaway question as well i uh i do this we have a me and Becky sometimes have a little tally of how many like strange metaphors I managed to drop into uh, into these recordings as well we've had all sorts of uh strange ramblings from myself so you're in very good company for, for rambling I definitely would say what, it was
2: when when the Greeks come out and and the Aristotles you know we've hit peak and we love it we embrace it
0: <laughs> yes it. yes I'm not afraid to uh, to quote Aristotle for a very unrelated question point uh, we are discovering but um but yeah, no, I, I, I fully, like, really feel and understand what you're saying there with that sort of the structure of it and that idea of actually, even though what we're doing is live and it's unpredictable, um, I mean, Becky and myself both work in improv as well as other sort of mm-hmm. types of theatres as well, so we, we go the extra step in terms of the unpredictable, but there's still structure in that. And actually, for me, it's very comforting to know that, okay, yes, I don't know what the audience are going to do. I know what we're supposed to be doing. But when the lights go down, anything might happen. But actually, I know what to do when the lights go down. And I think that, for me, is another reason why being in this crisis right now and and, and seeing the instability and the, the unknown about what's happening to the arts actually makes me really worried about what if I have to stop working in the arts? What if I have to go and be in another industry or another environment where I, I don't know what happens when the lights go down? And I'm just wondering if any of these sort of things that i'm sort of having to start processing and thinking about it how is the sort of how is the crisis facing you as as your sort of script writing and your your music is there have you still got sort of um projects that you're working on perhaps has everything come to a stop maybe what was it like when lockdown hit and then how are things sort of coming back through
1: well at the beginning um there were things that kind of disappeared. And so my partner, Vida, apart from doing music with me, um, is a gigging musician who does sometimes hundreds of gigs in a year. And our diaries are always just full of him being in Scotland and Holland and all over the world and everything. Um, So there was that. When um, A week before, I think, we locked down, Ireland locked down, and he was in Dublin for a gig. He'd flown over there. Um, And, you know, his anecdote is he got in the shower washed his hair ready for his gig got out turned the tv on and it said all venues are shutting down everything's shutting down so he just got in a taxi and got to the airport and got on a plane as fast as he could and tried to get home and you know luckily he did get home but the, there was that kind of strange moment of normality breaking we then just opened our diaries and crossed out months and months of income you know with this with this sort of surreal feeling of right so none of that is happening none of those events are taking place and for me um, working in theatre I was gonna adapt Hedda Gabler Ibsen play for a a theatre I won't I won't tell you which one because obviously it didn't didn't go ahead and and they just they just couldn't think that far ahead suddenly in their programming they they um hopefully still might it maybe it'll happen in 2023 or something like that fingers crossed but that was a that was a blow because it was something I'd always wanted to do and it was basically going to happen you know before February March and um, when people started to reassess what can we and can't we do in theatre will anybody come to the theatre for a while um, so that was the kind of the the downside professionally um, the things we've been really grateful for is that we both, I suppose, come at the arts from different angles, so um, Vidar teaches at Lipper and his teaching all immediately went online but it was still there, he kind of just disappeared off with his laptop and spoke to his students over Zoom. Um, and I was really lucky to have some screen projects that, I, I suppose, probably more uncertain in terms of production now, but development is long, and I've continued to write those scripts, you know, being optimistic about the fact that they can be produced in the future. Um, So, yeah, I felt very, very grateful to, I think, to be kind of established as a writer, actually, that's the thought that's come to me so many times. I feel so sorry for people who were just getting started. I think if you look at the way the, um, the government support has worked as well, so many of the people who've kind of fallen through the gaps and haven't received that financial support are people who just haven't been doing it long enough, or, you know, you need 50% of your income to be self-employed to receive the government self-employed support. And um, so what if your incomes are, you know 45% self-employed and the rest was, you know, casual jobs in cafes and bars that have also disappeared. I think that's a lot of people. Um, and, you know, we know people like that. So yeah, I've been really kind of, counting my blessings and also feeling you know anxious about the wider industry and younger artists and you know this had happened to me 10 years ago it, it really would have been massive in terms of whether or not I could have even carried on as a as a writer
0: yeah and it's a it's a thing I'm hearing a lot I'm currently doing a lot of work locally with freelance technicians and people from the freelance production uh, industry as part of a um, sort of an offshoot of the fuel task force that was set up for freelancers uh, right at the start of the pandemic and yeah there's a, the big scope of people that sort of come to our group meetings where we've got very sort of established 20 plus years in the industry being a stage manager or being a production manager and then i've got people who've literally just graduated from university and the 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 difference in that sort of and and there's different issues people sort of bring up whereby you've got the established person going I'm really worried that I'm not going to be able to I'm not going to be when 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 things eventually reopen that there won't be as much stuff and there'll be more competition for jobs and there'll be more competition for work and so you've got the established person who's going I spent 20 30 years of my life doing this and I'm I want to be back on that top of that list to get back into work but then you've got the graduate person who's going if you're only going to employ experienced people I'm never going to make it into this industry and I think actually this is a thing we're going to need to start addressing going forward because everything is changing so quickly and so rapidly I mean we're recording this on the the, the 23rd of September and we're, we're just going back into another sort of phased lockdown situation whereby last week or the week before when we've been recording podcasts we're talking about reopening and now we can't talk about reopening again and i think this ever quick changing situation is making it really difficult to sort of know where you are in things i don't know if you've got any sort of any sort of upcoming things that you you either um know about or 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 would like to know like i've got ideas that might happen or if you're still sort of going I don't know what's what's coming. Is there any sort of thing on the horizon for
1: you? Um, I've been working on a script with Box of Tricks Theatre, based in Manchester, for a couple of years. Um, And we were hoping that it might be produced at the end of this year. And it looks like, all being well in the world, it'll tour spring 2022. Um, So, I mean, that's kind of close enough to yeah. keep, keep me almost cheerful. No, it's it's, a, it's yeah. a point to aim for, isn't it? It's like a kind of light on the horizon. And um, theatre timelines can be so long anyway. That's what I kind of been telling myself to, to cheer myself up about it all. And it's just a chance to make sure that that script is as good as it can possibly be. Um, but then I think for a lot of people, if they didn't also have all the um, forms of sorry, I'm getting a bit lost now. Right. <laughs> I think if I didn't also have the income from screenwriting or you know yeah. things I can pursue in radio relationships that already exist with you know radio or TV producers, for instance, then having a play on in two years' time is not going to be enough for me to, to keep focused on being a scriptwriter. Um, so I, I think it's, yeah, good to... I, I am optimistic about the fact that theatre will be back and audiences will be back and we need it too much to let it go. My worry is about, in the meantime, where are those artists going who, who would be focused on writing that next great play or, you know, would already be struggling to clear the time to write that next great play and now maybe just don't have that time because they're, they're constantly chasing the tail and trying to find income. Um, so I do think it's important that the conversation recognises that and supports those kind of newer or, and or younger people in the arts.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right. I'm curious, because um, it's something that sort of comes up in conversations I have, but um, again, with more sort of technical people as sort of things that we're curious about. But I wonder, from your perspective as a, as a writer, Do you think potentially the work we're going to start seeing that is being made will be sort of, constrained isn't quite the right word, but crafted to be more COVID viable, if that makes sense? Do you think we'll see more sort of two-handers or smaller pieces? Is anyone sort of talking about this in the writing world?
1: I haven't had those conversations yet for stage because it is all really paused. You know, I don't think there's... meetings are particularly happening. Um, I've had some of those conversations about practicalities for screen and how people might continue to make work and adapt stories to those scenarios of different types of film sets. Um, I think there's two things really. Theatre is always operating under constraints. You're constantly trying to think theatrically, which really comes down to Making your constraints opportunities rather than looking at it and going, oh, I wish this was on screen. Oh, a helicopter would be much better on screen. Um, you know, you, you're trying to write the story that, that doesn't have the helicopter that approaches those same ideas in new ways. That's my theatricality workshop. They're condensed into about four sentences. Um, so <laughs> I don't I don't worry about the quality being any less. you know, because writers or directors, actors have those particular constraints. And also we've we've already had about 10 years of austerity in the arts, of things in many ways getting smaller. The only times I've been able to write for big casts have been when I've been writing plays for young people, be performed in community settings, or actually once with the exception of the, the rep company at the Everyman, which was a very particular scenario, there were going to be 12 actors. I could use eight of them um, and yeah. in general writers are already thinking two-hander monologue if you put a script in front of someone with five actors you probably already were going to be asked could you maybe kill one of them off um, so I think I hope that there's still space for bigger bigger shows bigger um modes of storytelling and I hope that that doesn't only exist in the West End. It yeah, I think people will have to be even more creative with with budgets and maybe with the way that we overlap what's been thought of as community theatre with what's been thought of as professional theatre. Maybe the way that we combine the two has to become um, more inventive, really.
0: Yeah, I think you. I think you. you you're totally right. I mean, I saw. Even yesterday, I think I saw a news article that was saying that um, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport had kind of said professional theatre can carry on producing shows with more than six people in them, but amateur theatre can't produce shows with more than six people in them. And for me, that really cripples community work. Mm -hmm. And it really sort of starts to knock back at this idea of actually the big part of what I think most of the arts does that people don't see is community work and community engagement. And I know for a fact that if I hadn't have been in a very small community youth theatre company when I was growing up in the very, very quiet Lancash- Lancashire suburbs, I wouldn't have gone into the arts. I would never have like seen that as a, as a progression path. And I wonder if, what do you think potentially the shape of community work might be changing into if we are coming under rule of six regulations coming under this idea that you know we can't come together for um for community because it's viewed as amateur and that that sort of that that crossing of wires and potentially like could you maybe um for anyone who's listening who doesn't really appreciate or understand what community means and community engagement talk a little bit about about all that and the threat to that that you come kind of maybe think?
1: Well, I suppose it can mean a lot of things. It can be, for instance, the elders group at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. There's a, a brilliant project, has been running for a long time, um, where older people in the Manchester community come together and make work, and they devise work and put on shows, and they would be within the, the Royal Exchange. So those aren't professional performers or writers, but they're engaging with a professional theatre and potentially you know draw an audience as well and then you know there's a variety of community groups operating within theatres in that way doing work that's that's so vital to the people in those groups and also that can have such creative value you know value to on the stage to audience members that really shouldn't be dismissed and and I mentioned I've written two plays for young people one of them published quite recently but the other one was for NT connections and um, national theatre run they you know put out about 10 plays for young people each year in a collection and they get them out there to schools and that was one of the most rewarding experiences i've ever had you know as a as a writer that there were like 25 different productions that happened um in the uk and beyond of this, this script that i'd you know quietly written at home and The quality of those productions, you know, in some cases was absolutely incredible. And these some of them were happening in schools, in schools, others were like youth clubs, others were, you know, drama clubs that were um, set up independently of schools. So it's it's actually um, quite moving when you start to look into all these creative settings, these I almost said the word bubbles then, created bubbles, but that, that, that word is not quite yet now. Um, but it's it's such an important thing that we, you know, we live in a, in a country and in a culture where actually quietly and modestly the arts are really valued. There are a lot of people who understand that going along to an andram club and singing and telling a story in a certain way is going to enrich their lives and help them make friends and help help them, you know, Understand the world better. I think it can sound quite airy fairy when we talk about this stuff, but to lose that is enormous. Actually, um, yeah. and a lot yeah, of it's, it's stuff's massive. carrying on online, but it's it's not enough. Obviously, it's something, but it's not enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. We had um, we had an interview a couple of weeks ago with um, Sam Avery, who's the artistic director of the Comedy Trust here in Liverpool. And he was talking about the engagement work that they do and having to do it over Zoom and it, it just not being quite the same really when you're trying to, you're doing community engagement, you're doing work with the people for the people and it's all remote and it there's a, there's a different feeling to that. And I think for me, definitely that is something that we will need to, if if this distancing is long-term, which it looks like it will be until we've got better medical advances I don't know I'm not a scientist I'm not trying to like predict the future of what we're doing but I think yeah to, to continue to sort of just bring in a blanket restriction that says oh well if you're amateur you can't do it if you're professional you can do it mm-hmm. and I appreciate the fact that that professionals need to be working to earning their money and that's an important thing we should be propping up but to just disregard the entire amateur and community and all of that area of what we do I think is very foolish personally.
1: Yeah I agree I think um, a lot of the the rules are quite vague in, in many ways at the moment for instance you know you, you could be putting on a play in a school right now but if you happen to run your drama club outside the school maybe that's then not allowed so I, I think over time hopefully there'll be clarity around those things um, and I think you're right it's worth defending the right of amateur groups to meet and you know meet safely and make work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well with being so isolated, a lot of people during this entire process, actually that that one glimmer of, oh, but I've got my I've got my group on a Thursday or whatever that means, I think it's very vital to a lot of people's wellbeing and and things like that. And I think it's often sort of I say often, I, I don't think it's often in the sort of um my immediate world, but I think there's certain people, potentially people in power, who sort of dismiss certain things like, oh, it's just just a bit of prancing around, isn't it? And yes, it is a bit of prancing around, but it's very vital prancing around is what I would uh, I would I would say. Um,
2: but yeah. I think I... as well it helps keep that diversity as well. Those kind of groups, those community groups, they're the ones where it's like the people that wouldn't necessarily engage with mm. the arts in a way. It's that way of getting people in and introducing them. And, and seeing that actually you are represented in it and it, yeah diversity is another really sort of vital element to that that can easily just be swiped if it's all just yeah, yeah. I will not waffle no. that but I'll, I'll get off my soapbox I know exactly
1: what you mean um, and that maybe if, if we hear the, the phrase amateur theatre we think of like the vicar in the local village hall during Gilbert and Sullivan um, but then Actually, the, the the reality is more like a diverse group of kids who probably wouldn't be in that village hall or wherever if it wasn't part of a structure, a, you know, a funded structure yeah. where they've been encouraged and, you know, their creativity has been cultivated in a certain way. And if all that sidelines, then over time that becomes a, a huge problem for the arts. And obviously immediately it's a problem for those individuals.
0: Yeah. Exactly, and I think this is, this is drawing us really quite nicely towards um, the, the, the question that we, we very much ask everyone who, who comes and joins us on this podcast, and um, we've had a variety of responses to this. Becky's um, getting excited about this question. Uh, no one who's listening can see, but Becky's sort of bouncing in her seat in sort of anticipation for her. uh So we ask everyone who joins us uh, on this podcast, if you were given the magical opportunity right now to sit down with uh, Oliver Dowden who is the uh, Culture Secretary, with Rishi Sunak who is the Chancellor and with Boris Johnson who at the time of recording is the Prime Minister, um, what would you say to them to sort of sum up everything we've spoken about today? Um, anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important that they know, um, if you've got potentially things you think they should be doing that they're not doing? if you think certain things they're doing is terrible and why they shouldn't be doing, if you got to have that sit-down conversation, what would you choose
1: to say? I would say I feel like there's been an unspoken agenda since 2008 to, to slowly reduce the the arts across the country to preserve what, what they perceived to be the prestigious corners of the arts and just slowly let work around the country in what's often called regional, you know, areas, regional theatre, regional art centres, to just fade slightly. And um, there's been a massive emphasis on business models that's completely misunderstood the creativity, the the actual process that goes into making art and completely ignored or largely ignored the, the value to people's lives through making an experience in art. I would say that that's all been magnified in the last few months. And it's, it's obvious to me that they don't mind allowing certain institutions to wither. And I think that's really immoral and actually there shouldn't be a discussion that's about the economy, and then the arts is in brackets at the side of it because one, the arts is a successful economy itself; um, it's a successful industry. You have to you have to fund the Everyman in Liverpool or you know Northern Stage in Newcastle in order to have an arts ecology that develops artists, technicians, stage managers, everyone involved to then out the other end have. The massive blockbuster shows in London you know you don't get Warhorse or Harry Potter out of thin air those shows if you look at who works on them you know those people come through a really amazing successful theatre ecology um, and that's something we should be proud of and should be working to keep um, but actually if you're just talking about the money then there's a very strong financial argument for making sure that you keep funding regional theatres properly and make sure that there's a writers group in Hull, you know, for instance, or Liverpool or Manchester or Birmingham. Um, But then there's this bigger conversation that I feel like that party and those politicians will never have, would almost be embarrassed to have about the actual meaning in people's lives. And it's that, that overused Winston Churchill quote that he may or may not have actually have said that you know should we choose between the war effort and the arts and he was supposed to have said well if we if we don't choose both then what's the point you know if the theatres closed then what why do you want to win the war what what are we coming home to um I'm definitely paraphrasing Winston Churchill there but I I have felt that very deeply lately I think all the way through this there's been a kind of repetitive statement of, you know, that in times like these is when we need the arts the most. And I've definitely felt that from the start, but maybe distracted by the kind of the stresses and the practicalities of the last six months, I've kind of paid lip service to, yeah, yeah, we need the arts. We need the arts because, you know, the, the news is all about how we need PPE, for instance. But then just just the last few weeks, I've actually really, really felt the need, you know, like the the kind of longing to be able to sit in a theatre and see something that could make some sense of the last six months. And um, I've been listening to the New Yorker podcast lately, which one of the things they do is kind of writers read out short stories and they discuss them. Um, And... This is, this is a long-winded way of explaining something. But they, they uh, read out a uh, Haruki Murakami short story from a collection of his called After the Earthquake, all stories set in the aftermath of an earthquake in Japan in the 1990s. So all in small, delicate ways, dealing with trauma and shock and loss and you know culture disrupted, lives disrupted. And it kind of just hit me in the gut hearing hearing his this particular story and hearing the discussion around it, that actually there's a there's a danger in times of stress, you know, ex- extreme national trauma to um international trauma to get quite small and self-serving and inward-looking. And actually, you know, we shouldn't be necessarily ashamed of that. We we're all worrying about our kids and our parents and how to get through the week, aren't we? But actually one massive important thing that the arts does is kind of shake us and make us look outside that and you know, think bigger and remember we're part of a community, which is, you know, right back to what I was saying earlier. And as much as the first few weeks of all this, back in March, there was kind of a shock how much we're all part of a community, like, oh God, you know, if someone doesn't take the risk of emptying my bin, you know, who's going to empty my bin you know the person on the checkout in the supermarket is holding the fabric of society together why have we never thought enough about this but then at the same time I think over time it's all it's all so much to process that I think people can become quite small in their thinking and quite protective maybe you know our own experience is hard enough to deal with emotionally so maybe we just would rather not think about what's happening next door so that telling stories and exploring fictions is actually vital. That word again, to allow us over time to work out what's happened to us and why and how we can come through it and how we can feel part of something bigger again and not just kind of small reactionary people. Yeah, amazing. I mean that would win me over. I don't
0: know about anyone else, but uh, I mean I'm not a Tory. I'm gonna say blatantly that I, I uh, you know, um, no, no. I, I uh,
1: kind but, of forgot. Uh, I was talking to to Boris and Rishi and Oliver. <laughs> if I had been, I probably wouldn't have used quite. I
0: mean, you can you can you can add to to this if you wanna if you wanna tack on an addendum just for them three, But that was beautiful, all <laughs> of what you just said. I, I just like I need I need to agree with that again and again.
1: You know what? I'm trying so hard all the time not to be angry at the moment yeah. because it's it's exhausting and it feels it feels like it takes something out of me and actually you know I'm I'm not talking directly to them and I can't um you know improve things by getting myself wound up about how much no. how angry I am with those politicians and that situation so it's yeah. it's that thing of of really trying to to focus on what what is in my control and get on with writing that script talk to people like you make good conversations happen and um, yeah try and try and resist the rant and then maybe maybe one yes. day when the pubs are open again you'll you'll buy me a pint <laughs> and then the rant will all come out that's a deal that's <laughs> Excellent.
2: a definite that's so deal like a
1: perfect plan for it. A, a much nicer future
0: yeah and i think this idea that we can we can be, we can have agency in building the future through this as well. And actually, that as much as the government will put in policy and they'll put in rules or guidance or whatever, we are a community. And actually, we can, as much as we're dependent on their policy on funding, and like you talk about this managed decline, you might call it, mm-hmm. of um, certain, especially certain regions, but um, we as a community can be a community regardless of what they're doing in sort of central government and actually we i think we've got agency and power to be able to start shaping that future for ourselves as well and and this for me is a real good opportunity to start having potentially conversations we would never have i mean i think we're already seeing those sorts of conversations about things like diversity about things like um even things like employment rights and uh, how much of theatre is dependent on casual um, staff mm-hmm. and freelance staff. And I think these really difficult conversations wouldn't have come out of anything other than crisis. And actually, I think you're totally right in that idea of sitting and being angry isn't often the most helpful thing you can do for yourself and actually finding the productive out of it and, and, and doing that. It's definitely something I've been trying to embrace. I mean, I, it's really strange. I I talk to my friends and I'm never the optimistic person in my friendship group but through this entire thing I've been going it's gonna be fine we are gonna be fine because we have to be fine and I think I've had this determined optimism that you know what we'll make it okay even if it can't be okay and so I yeah I, I completely agree and I appreciate everything you've you've just said it's my sort of way of responding to what you just said in a in
1: a, a lovely rambly way back yeah and, and you, there's a really good point in there as well about freelancers and I think the fact that the arts have been so stretched for so long, and um, the slack of that has l- obviously not entirely, but a lot of the slack of that has been picked up by freelancers and you know, casual workers. And actually, people have been running themselves ragged for far too long. You know, pe- people within theatre staffs, staff in arts institutions, and freelancers, everyone's been doing you know twice the job for half the money and the show must go on and actually it's quite good to have this moment of pause to say well when we start again can we be kinder to ourselves to use a kind of trendy term but can we actually think about workers rights and um, ways of doing things that don't mean that we're constantly exhausted and not spending enough time with our kids and you know try and make sure that there's a there's a better way of making work in the future in that regard
0: yeah I had a really um interesting chat about this idea quite a quite early on in the in the pandemic I was on a a group video call with a lot of people I work with from all up and down the country who we all work together at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we were all talking about locally how our local theatres and spaces were responding because we have a few people who were in Australia and then people who are up and down the country as well. And we were just having a bit of a a sharing of information, essentially. And this idea came up with the fact that actually a pandemic does one thing really well and it makes you think about your health and it makes you think about your physical health. And you have to put in so many guards for your physical health in a pandemic. We have to wear a mask, we have to wash our hands, we have to be distanced. And this idea came up that actually this is a brilliant opportunity to start thinking about our mental health in the same way that we think about our physical health. And actually, if the one thing a pandemic can bring is this new way of talking about your health in a way that's not seen as, oh, you're shirking your responsibility. Oh, you're calling in a sickie for work. This idea that actually your health is a really vital thing that needs to be a priority within your working life as well. I think is something that can come out of this as well as another tangent for another day, perhaps. But yeah. Yeah. definitely just reminded me of that conversation no,
1: absolutely it's all connected definitely
0: yeah yeah absolutely oh well thank you so much for uh, for joining us lizzie this has been fantastic to have this chat yeah thank you this, uh, i'm just looking out my window it's a bit of a cloudy a cloudy day but uh, <laughs>
2: lovely lovely chats nonetheless yeah a yeah. well, fluorescent lighting so it's very bright in here but this is this has been a nice <laughs> brightness rather than fluorescent brightness <laughs> Yeah. Um, if people would like to find your work or what
0: you're up to, are there ways that people can, can do that?
1: Yeah. Um, the website is nonnerenorheim.com um, and and then Norheim is N-O-R-H-E-I-M. And that's all like music, me and Viedar are making, but also stuff about my writing as well. And yeah, if you if you search for that, you'll find, find all you need to know.
0: Excellent. I'll uh, I'll stick a link to that website in the description for the podcast, so anyone can just go on the description wherever you're listening to this and find that link as well. Thank you for listening to the Voices Project. This podcast is produced by March for the Arts. The Voices Project is an open platform for anyone who is involved in any way with the arts to share their thoughts feelings and experiences of art in the current crisis if you would like to participate and share your voice you can find out how to do that by visiting our website www.marchforthearts.com if you have enjoyed this podcast please take a moment to give us a review subscribe or share you can find out more about what we're doing on our social media